The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 20th, 2017, from Slated to the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. After Marine Le Pen, the so-called Donald Trump of France, lost, and after Goethe Wilders, the Donald Trump of the Netherlands, failed to gain enough votes to affect Dutch politics much, and after Donald Trump, the so-called Donald Trump of America, won, and that came on the heels of Brexit, the Donald Trump of international political and member group plebiscites, that also won. Now we have a Czech politician named Andrea Babish. He's being called the Donald Trump of the Czech Republic. Here's why. He's a very, very rich businessman. He's the second richest man in the country. He owns a huge empire of food and fertilizer businesses. Uh, He owns bakeries. He owns meat processing plants. He also owns uh, the country's two leading daily newspapers and a TV station. That from the PRI program, The World. Here's the reason I bring this up. The Donald Trump of wherever is to politics what the Uber of whatever is to start up tech companies. Donald Trump is the Uber of small-mindedness. Need a flinty nationalist? He's right there at the touch of a button. And again, Travis Kalanick is a little bit like the Donald Trump of Uber, I suppose, but just in the horse's ass and allegedly kind of gropey sense. So that's a cliche. That's a cliche. But what is not a cliche, what stood out to me, is Andrea Babish's party name. And This party is poised to win this weekend's election. You ready? It's called a no. A-N-O. A no. But I'll read the times. A no means yes in Czech. A no means yes. Well, that's appealing to certain flinty nationalists, but apparently also big Democratic donors. So here you have a no meaning yes. But also, I'll quote from the Times, and also, you know, they're translating, so I guess anyone with a good translation would say this. It's also an acronym for the Association of Dissatisfied or Disgruntled Citizens. So a no means yes for the people who are yelling no. The word disgruntled, dissatisfied, that is, I'm going to butcher this, Nespokoyenik possibly Nespoko Yenich, possibly totally different from what I said. I'm just going by what I see. Anyway, Nespoko Yenich, the disgruntled, that is a great slogan for those planning to storm the castle. But once you gain control of the castle, it is a terrible slogan. Even MAGA, Make America Great Again, is more farsighted than disgruntled Citizens United. Because after you have a little sway, you become the gruntalore rather than the gruntalee. Your job is to take the disgruntled and to make them a little more gruntled. Not maybe totally good and gruntled, but a little bit of an engruntling. Now, it's hard. Of course, it's hard right? Given the world economy, given the fact that to use this, uh, what's going on, the same thing's going on in the United States. And I think we know that the coal jobs and factory jobs aren't going to come back. We also know if you're a MAGA person, the uh, the, the brown people aren't going to go away. But you do have to pretend that your government is working to do something other than to govern by grievance. Yes, it is. Donald Trump just is governing by grievance. But he doesn't have the word disgruntled right there in the Make America Great Again thing. Once elected, he could keep the slogan and sidestep the fact that we're all pissed off at the way things are. So I think a no might win. But unless it changes its name, it is not going to make the Czech Republic great again.
on the show today, I spiel about, you know, is it just me? Is it? Because, you know, sometimes it is. But first, podcaster Mark Marin and podcast producer Brendan McDonald. And what's more, podcast producer Brendan McDonald is not just the producer of any podcast. He produces Mark Marin's podcast. At first, I was going to ask Brendan, what does he think about the Brookings Cafeteria podcast? Because he has thoughts. Oh, he has thoughts. But when he talks about the Mark Marin podcast, WTF, it's all much better. Mark and Brendan, waiting for the punch. It is here now. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Mark Marin has been called the mustachioed angry man of emotional honesty, a bard of the human condition, and Jewish. He's been called Jewish. I made a few of those phrases up. His podcast is WTF. His book is Waiting for the Punch. Mark Marin and Brendan McDonald with a forward by John Oliver. Not only is Mark Marin here, so is producer Brendan McDonald. Hello. Thanks, guys, for Hi. coming in. Isn't that wild? We're both together. I like it. The and team that's together. That's you're in Brooklyn, and that's where... Brendan, you se- you seldom leave Brooklyn, right? Uh, that's right. I, I think I'm only out in L.A. like twice a year, and that's where Mark does the show, which has been a good uh, co-working relationship for us 3,000 miles apart. He only, it... he only comes out if presidents are coming over. Well, that was, that was, for was that for you or for him that you showed up? Uh, well, I was, I wasn't home. he wasn't even there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so when uh, when when President Obama, you know, it was like a week long process to set up that interview. You know, they have Secret Service come and sweep the house, and then they figure out logistically where they have to place things. And uh, I had to be the one there, you know, walking them right. through. Mark was in Hawaii. And when and when Bob Odenkirk comes by, not as intense a process in general. No. Sometimes people come alone. Sometimes they come with people. I have a part time assistant who hangs out in the house mm-hmm. if people come with people because it's not... Because your studio's a garage and the house is the house. Right, but it's a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house. Like, they got, they walk in the front door and they're like, where's the bathroom? I'm like, you can see it. It's right in, down the hall. Uh, do you need water? Do you want tea or coffee? I can make you something. Uh, like, are you hungry? People have been like, do you have... I had to give the... What's the name of those two, the two women who... The show on Comedy Central... Broad City. Yeah, the Broad City. They, they hadn't eaten breakfast. Oh, you got to feed Abby and so Alana. It, yeah, Abby and that. Alana needed puffins. <laughs> and, and, That's what they had, the puffins. Yeah, they had puffins yeah. and almond milk. Uh, <laughs> one of them did. And then John Glazer, I think, came over, and he needed a, a hot dog. Like, he was like, I haven't eaten all day. I'm like, I can grill you up a, a chicken sausage. And he's like, oh, that'd be perfect. And, you know, that happens. Like, yeah, Elvis Costello came in, and he saw my espresso maker, which is just a little, you know, it's a real espresso maker. He's like, what does that do? And I said, it makes espresso. He's like, yes. And then I gave him one. It was good because he was late and we only had an hour. And he was so jacked. He went through about two hours worth of conversation in 45 minutes. That's good. Mm-hmm. So when you started the podcast, Brendan, you guys worked together at Air America, right? That's right. That was where we met. 
What were, <laughs> and Air America, oh, in case you forgot it, was an idea that was probably a little too early, or maybe there was something in the execution. There were these weird Guam funders also that, That's you right. know, sank the thing. But uh, Air America was political radio, like a liberal political radio. And Mark is liberal and he's good at radio, but I don't know that that was his sweet spot per se. I didn't Mark know anything Mark about anything. <laughs> so what part of what he was doing, since you're a radio professional, what part of what he was doing on Air America, did you want to cultivate and expand? And, you know, how did you manage it before we even get to the podcast, Brendan? How did you try to produce him on Air America to maximize how good he is? Well, the funny, Mark's laughing because I think the the idea of trying to manage him at that time is comical. Like he was so full of anxiety and energy and, you know, we'd just be freaking out every morning at all this just, news and processing and the information. That what was that, that first time that dad gave me the, the breakdown of the news? Yeah, like like our, our friend Dan Pashman, he, he, would, he was the editorial producer on the show and he would bring a packet a digest of news that he had, had cultivated in the morning and he gave it to mark and mark was like what is this i can't read all of this like he thought he actually had to like read every bit of news at, at three in the morning that was horrible homework yeah oh my uh, God. but you know that that anxiety and and energy toward a cause was you know not only apparent just when you're sitting around the office but when mark got on the mic he immediately channeled that into like political anxiety yeah. and people who are listening you know i i just could feel right away oh they're connecting with this guy and and he was kind of hired as like the sidekick uh, on an original show. concept was yeah. there were political types or professional political talkers paired with a funny person that's right al franken janine garofalo yeah. you know uh, liz winstead and mark was on this morning show team uh, of people who were supposed to be handling the news and the political interviews. And, and then this guy would wise. crack jokes. Yes, 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 exactly. And I remember we sat in, in a hallway at Air America right before the show launched after we had been doing some practice shows and that. And the, the executive producer was like, what do you guys think works and what doesn't work? And I said, well, I can tell you what works. It's it's Mark Marin. Like that guy should be like Howard Stern. Like we should be putting that guy out more. And and if and everything I, should be through his filter. That's and the right. Other people should be the side. And I can tell you yeah. that was validated. Maybe like a year, a little less than a year into it, there was this moment, and we talk about it as the moment that Mark kind of found his voice on the mic. He he opened the show at six a.m. with this like long monologue slash diatribe about how he was making lentils oh, the lentil <laughs> the night before and and was stirring them and then fell asleep and when he came to they had turned into this like primordial paste and like you could make arrowheads out of them or something it was yeah. just this like 6 a.m lucid dreamings type of conversation and the phones lit up like people were like calling in like i know why that happened or i've had that happen to myself and like it was as engaged as i'd seen an audience be with any political topic yeah. that we've had on the show now, at that point you say maybe our americans fundamental mission statements a little off well it's we've been funny about politics all this time but it's the lentil thing they we used to he used to come into the, like the control room and we'd be like what's what are we talking about now and you know we'd, we'd go through the rundown or whatever and he'd be like but what, like, is this political enough to do? And I'd be like, dude, you're political enough. Like, you just, you be you. Right. And that'll filter through with how you're talking. If you're talking about your cats, it's going to essentially, you know, tap into some type of personality trait that the progressive-minded audience listening to this is going to relate to. And that was clear. That was true. Did you get better at interviewing or conversing? Because I know you're loath to call yourself an interviewer. Did you get better during the Air America stint? No. I don't think so. I, I think really what I learned at Air America more than anything else was how to 
be on these mics, mm -hmm. how to be on a radio mic. My problem was like, I would like to make people laugh. Like, what is that guy? <laughs> That's to... a real problem. <laughs> no, but like on a political talk show, okay. when I'm talking to Bergen, Peter, was it Peter Bergen? Oh, oh Peter Bergen. Peter yeah. Bergen he used From to cover CNN. out yeah. terrorism expert. Right. Guys? I just yeah. like, I was so excited the day that I made him laugh. Like, cause it was this weird snorty kind of laugh. Yeah, like a, a giggle. Yeah, it was, it was oh, a high giggle. A high giggle. And I was like, yes. You know, we're talking about, you know, you know, Al Qaeda. And uh, this is the one of the few people who's met Osama bin. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just thrilled that I made him giggle. I understand the humor. I understand why you responded to Mark as a compelling performer. He was that in his stand-up, but it's the insight that he elicits. How did you know that would happen? Well, what I think I always thought was even when he's interacting with another person, it's all going through the filter of who he is. Mm -hmm. And I just always saw it as this is the Mark Marin podcast. I want to be in that business, right? I want to be facilitating what I enjoyed about him, not just his broadcasting, but his stand-up, his writing. I want that out in the world in a way that I can produce. And I just always saw the show within, I would even say within the first hundred episodes of that was the guests coming on were in service of that. So the first hundred episodes were pulling Mark out of himself. And then from then on, it's now about you pulling other people I, I, th I, well, I think really like i don't know if there's a line i think that the the style of what i do conversationally evolved to like i i, I am part of the conversation so yeah. yeah that's what you know brendan is saying and i'm also emotionally needy and i and i need to connect with people i if they're coming over i need to find common ground i need to make an impact or feel like you know we have things uh that i'm connected to them emotionally and i can do it pretty quickly uh i can feel it pretty quickly and, and so really what it became was like, I want to feel that at least for some part of the conversation, I needed to be some sort of authentic engagement. And I think a lot of times where, you know, if I interrupt people or I finish their sentences or cut them off or, uh, and move the conversation elsewhere, it, it's a, it's a way that, that I connect, but it's also a fairly useful conversational tool because it gets them off their personal narrative. It makes, yes. it's very interesting. There was a period where, where celebrities would come over who are not really used to an interviewer or the the host interjecting or interrupting their thing, and they'd be in the middle of something, be like, "Oh, that happened to me." And I could just see on their face this moment where they'd be like, "Why is he talking?" <laughs> and 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 then and then they got yeah. used to it. Yeah, when you establish yourself before, it's like, "All right, this is another guy on the junket, and they're using this for the clips on the local Edmonton morning show." That's what they're used to. That's what they're used to. Yeah. It's like it'll be weird for the Edmonton morning show guy to tell me about his own personal yeah, experience, his cat or his dad. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, now you told uh, Jesse Thorne that you don't consider what you do interviewing you told yeah you told um bill simmons that you're not a good interviewer what do you think interviewing is if you're not an interviewer well i always thought that the the idea of interviewing on a journalistic basis you know you know which is you know if, i don't know what to, who what when where why necessarily applies but there was always this idea that if you're going to ask a question you should sort of know what you're looking for mm-hmm and and I don't really have the questions, and I don't really know what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm looking for a connection. You know, like I've become more 
open to my own empathy, which was a little shut down out of my bitterness initially. Uh, you know, I'm a pretty sensitive guy, but I was consumed in a sort of self-pity and bitterness at the beginning of the podcast that kind of disabled my ability to be as empathetic as I was, as I've become able to do. So if I feel my heart kind of, if I feel choked up or I feel tears coming or I feel elated, that moment that happens when someone's talking to me, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good to listen to. I just saw this random, but Pete Davidson just did a weekend update, desk piece, I guess they call it, where he talked about his depression, his bipolarity. I knew that because he talked to you borderline? about it. Borderline? Did he was Border- yeah, that borderline, it? borderline. Yeah. Do you think without the interview on WTF, he'd have done that on no, SNL? I don't think so. I agree. I, I don't think, well, I, I don't think he really thought he was going to talk about that on the podcast, which is, uh, Judd Apatow said it one time, he's like, you just think that maybe he's going to lose this tape and nobody's going to hear it. <laughs> you know, it's just that's that's the way you you've, you're feeling about uh, the way this conversation is going is there's a trust there. And there's also a sense that, well, I, 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 if anything I say right now is public, it's not going to be that bad because this is safe. Have you ever turned down an interview or not wanted to do an interview because you feel there's an elephant in the room situation? You'd have to get to it. It, a little it's, bit. It's more about like we get a pitch about right. something that's very specific. There are people like where that have a, a broad enough thing, and if the controversy is, you, you know, uh, rumor driven or whatever, yeah, and they want, you know, they don't want to address that, but yet there's enough there to do. Fine, but if it has something. Like he's saying, like, you, we, you can do this interview as long as you don't talk about anything to do with her family or childhood right. or religion. It's like, right. well, what, what, then what, have you heard the show? Well, could you do Woody, <laughs> could you do Woody Allen without talking about scandals? And- no, see, that's the thing. It's almost like, would you do Woody Allen anyway? Because he so fundamentally avoids uh, being anything beyond the character he's do, created. Right, you'd have to do Woody Allen. On it, Woody Allen's terms. Yeah, and yeah. I've, I've and listened to- And that's what Terry Gross exactly, did. Exactly, And it was very that. unsatisfying, yeah. except to know, all right, this is who Woody Allen thinks he is. That's right. And listen, this is a Terry Gross move, but cut this out if you want. Look, I don't know anything what to think of Louis, the Louis C.K. rumors and innuendo, but if he came out, he's a good friend of yours, do you feel like you'd have to ask him or in some way get to that stuff? Well, it just be a matter of it. It is just that. I mean, these are these are rumors and innuendos, and I I don't know if he would. Uh... Well, what, what you would ask him, and he would say the same thing exactly. to you as he said to everybody else. Like, it's a rumor. Why yeah. am I even going to address you, it? So maybe you wouldn't want to put yourself in that position to like play that role. I mean, that's almost a journalistic thing. Look, I have to ask this question, but I've never felt you felt like you had to ask a question that you didn't really want to ask. No, I don't. I don't, and it's it's not like again. That's I'm not a journalist. You know, I mean, I, I may ask him as a friend in, in privately, but, you know, I'm not a journalist. I've also heard you say, you know, there are some guys who are like, oh, why do I want to do your show? I don't want to cry. And for some reason, I got the impression that it was a John Stewart type who said that, or perhaps specifically John Stewart. No, this, no, uh, that John Stewart and I, got, we got a beef from way back. Uh, but you that, have beef with so many people, and then it ends with we good, right? Yeah, that's not going to happen with no. that guy. Like, I'd, I'd been sort of a, a, you know, not not a great guy to him for a lot of years, because I was jealous of him, and I was having a hard time. And for years, he sort of stood in my mind as an obstacle to my success, and I just couldn't understand, you know, why he was successful, even though, you know, he's clearly great. He's done a lot of good stuff. You know, the Daily Show is very important to a lot of people, but I just had this because we came up together and I was, you know, volatile and, you know, and I told him like I, there, there was a series of events that happened between us, uh, arguments and me being a, a just a, you know, a, a not nice to the guy to his face because I was bitter and jealous that kind of built up. So 
when I finally did reach out to him, you know, he basically said, well, look, you know, there's there's no love here. I mean, you were not nice to me. And and, uh, you know, I don't want to do your show. Uh, You know, I'd be open to having a cup of coffee or whatever. And and I never really followed through on that because maybe I'm not grown up enough. And then other things happened that I think kind of sealed the deal with really that never being surmountable. So that that wasn't the case with John. Uh, The, you know, uh, I don't want to cry thing. It was more personal. Other than Louis, have you had conversations like John's where the comedian says, okay, I'll do the show, and it's worked out really well? Sure. There have been people that have sort of dressed me down on the show. Uh-huh. You, you know, where it's sort of like, well, you, you know, you did this, you did that. And I'm, I'm like, oh, I guess that's right. You know, because I only see my side of it. And then there are other times where I have a problem with somebody. Or, or I owe them an apology for something I did, and they don't even remember what I'm talking about. You know, like, <laughs> you, you know, it's it's very selfish what you hold on into, hold on to in your head, and also, you know, how much you really affect anybody else. So you, you, it's like I must have really crushed that person. They're like, what are you talking about? You know, or, or the other way. But no, I've had plenty of people that have you know, that didn't like me at one time or another on the show. Are those good to keep in, Brendan, as the listener surrogate? Like, do listeners want to care about all the old beefs that oh, maybe Mark has in his head? Yeah, the, the the endemic moment on that in the show is in the the uh, the Louis C.K. episode, two grown men actually dealing with a, a fractured friendship and work it out for everyone to hear. It's very rare that you actually hear those emotions. And Louis starts that out by saying, look, if you don't want to keep this in your podcast, you don't have to. But here's what I'll tell you about our friendship. And like, that's exactly what needs to be in the podcast. Yeah. And so he I said feel- I was a shitty friend. Yeah. <laughs> in those words. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, there are plenty of moments where people have said things that have the subtext of you can cut this out if you want to. And I can feel and hear that underneath what they're saying. And I'm. I gravitate toward it immediately. That's where the show perks up. Wait, what about that Morgan Murphy one? Whoa. Oh, that's very h- hardcore. Yeah. Wow, of man. That. Yeah. Remind me. Well, we had had a, a, a brief sort of affair and, you know, I heard her feelings and, you know, and she, what did she tell me? Like, Well, I just think the, 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 the what was explicit there was that whatever uh, you thought you had moved past had deeply hurt her mm. and that the, the, act of listening to her and hearing her out was more important than you ever kind of brushing off an apology. Like it felt like the episode itself was an apology, just the, the ability to be heard, uh, which, you know, was emotional. Yeah. Waiting for the punch is the book. Mark Marin wrote it with Brendan McDonald, his longtime producer, Mark, Brendan. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Thanks for Mike. talking. Wasn't that a great interview? I think so. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and never miss another gist. And now the spiel. Donald Trump tweeted today, just out, report, United Kingdom crime rises 13% annually amid spread of radical Islamic terror. Not good. We must keep America safe. Well, yes, there are a few types of crime that Donald Trump cares about. He cares about Islamic terrorism anywhere against any Western nation. So if it happened in Somalia, he's not going to tweet about it. But he has tweeted about Australian terrorism and jihadis in England and France. He also does not care about and will not tweet about white nationalists who terrorize Americans in America. He does care about illegal aliens who commit crimes against U.S. citizens. Those crimes get his attention and... He wants us to pay attention. However, in tweeting about England's 13% crime rise, I, uh, I went and checked it out. It's true. 
Now it's just England and Wales. They're still waiting on the Scotland and Northern Ireland stats. But when I looked into it, I confirmed there was a crime uptick. Then I dug deeper. Murders are actually down. Murders are at 664 in the country, and 35 of those were caused by terrorism. But that's this crime wave. 664 murders. Talking about a country of 65 million people. In the U.S., country of 320-ish million people, we had 15,696 murders last year. A little more math, a little more number crunching. Then I took to Twitter and tweet I did. Oh, yes, Twitter, I said. Twitter, realize Donald Trump is worried about some other country's murder rate, even though this, this country, the country that he talked about when he said American carnage, he was talking about this country, the American carnage murder rate makes it five times as likely you'll get murdered here. But that's what he's worried about. I didn't even mention anything about guns that largely explains the difference in murder rate. But I was pleased. I was pleased to point out that however much he's trying to scare us about the pernicious effects of terrorism on the murder rate, he's still talking about a country where you're only one-fifth as likely to get murdered, even what with all the Islamic terrorism he sees. Now, I know in my heart of hearts that my statistical argument like with crime rates and extrapolations based on the broader population, that will not carry as much sway as the president's original tweet, which just kind of goes like this, terrorism, murder, scary. But I think it should. When I say I think it should, I don't mean in a more advanced world. I mean, not so advanced as to, you know, preclude terrorism, but a more advanced world where people were smarter. Here's what I mean. Except for the fact that stats-based arguments have not changed many minds in my life, and scary bad man saying Allah Akbar, that's a really effective way to change policy. Except for the fact that this happens over and over again, I wouldn't guess, just based on who I am and how I see the world, I wouldn't guess that it would work. Now, I've seen that it does work, so I guess you could say what I did was I gathered a lot of data on the ineffectiveness of data, but really, the only way that I, I have no gut sense of this, I just see that, yeah, that's that's the way the world works. Kind of surprising. There are a lot of other things where I say, is it just me? It's very common for phenomena to go on. And I know it goes on because I observe the world, but I just don't quite get it in my gut. Let me give you another one. The obsession with bodies after they're dead. If you told me, hey, someone's dead, will people be very concerned with that person's body? I would say, nah. I don't think so, except this always happens. You know, the body was dragged through the street or they wouldn't give us access to the body or I couldn't even see him to say goodbye. Like To me, it doesn't matter. Once the person's dead, the person's dead. The body is just the physical thing that the person used to be in. I would think more people would agree with me. I, I, I'm treated as a freak when I say that, yeah, who cares about the body after the person dies? Here's another one. What the car looks like from the outside. I care about the car on the inside, but when I'm driving down the street, man, people are obsessed with their car's appearance. And I get it. Cars can be beautiful things. I understand aesthetics, but it is a big, big deal to people. People will pay twenty and $30,000 more for a car that looks better on the outside. People get a dent and pay thousands of dollars to get the dent out. It is odd to me that we have a word superficial, and when we say you're being superficial, it has negative connotations. But this is an example of literally being superficial, and because of the superficiality, you get to charge $20,000 more. Hotel rooms. I get that some are beautiful. I'm talking about on the inside again. It seems the dumbest thing to spend an extra 200 bucks on. I like a good bed. 
I like it quiet, where the hotel is. In some cases, the size matters. I would say it's just as it's not too small, right? Uncramped. It has to be uncramped. But people will pay out the proverbial wazoo for a beautiful looking hotel room. Why? This isn't your house. It doesn't reflect your taste. You didn't design it. And think about the time. Check-ins at 2, check-out's like at 11 a.m. You sleep for eight hours. Mostly you're doing whatever you're doing because you are visiting this town in the first place. Business meeting, tourism. So what, how, how much are you in the hotel? Like three hours? And of those three hours, how much of your eyes are actually focused in the room, right? You're looking at the mirror. You're shaving. You're looking at yourself in the mirror to see how your jacket looks. You're watching TV. I guess part of a hotel room is having a nice TV. But once the TV is working, getting the channels you want, you're probably watching that or you're reading a book. I mean, I've done the math. A good hotel room versus just a fine functional hotel room with a comfortable bed. It's like a difference of 300 bucks a night. And you're, what, spending 35 minutes actually gazing upon the room and pondering the contents therein? I'm just different. I'm different from everyone else on this, right? Most people would say, yeah, uh, of all the things to spend money on, if I don't have the money, I wouldn't spend that. Even if I did have the money, I would not want to spend the extra $300 on a hotel room. My girlfriend designs hotel rooms. She's great at it. And when I go into one of her hotel rooms, I can say, this is beautifully designed. And I'm not lying. Just because I observe what other people think, the things they say about a hotel room. I actually know that it looks better. I just don't see it being worth it. An analogy. I guess I could train to become an octopus beauty pageant judge, but I would never really feel it in my gut. And then there's this experience, this daily experience I have with coffee. Go up, you get your coffee. Hey, you want room for milk? Seems like a reasonable question. It's not. What are they really asking? They're asking, hey, would you like less coffee? I know you paid for a certain amount of coffee. I'm going to give you less. Now, A fairer way or an enticing way to say this might be, hey, would you like to pay for a medium coffee, but I'm going to put it in a large cup for you? But that's not what they do, is it? That'd be more honest. Now, the thing about wanting more room for milk is, yes, I actually do want more room for milk, but there's a lot of room between my definition and your definition of milk. Now, I understand why they have to ask. We've all seen this guy. I guess they're asking to try to forestall a certain abhorrent action. The guy doesn't ask for more room, or maybe even does, but it's still not uh, enough room for his liking. And you know what he does? He's by the milk and flavorings hub, you know, that station. And he takes the piping hot coffee and he pours a little bit into the trash. Into the Who is this animal? This guy will see a sign on the outside of the store that brags fair trade That'll be appealing to him. Sure, some farmer in Sumatra's life will get 0.2% better. That's attractive. I'm going to give this place my business. Then he goes into the place. He's looking at the guy behind the counter, and he pours his hot coffee into the garbage. Sorry there, Alphonse, low barista on the barista pole. Yeah, after I pour my piping hot coffee into the garbage, I I can't really consider what the ramifications on your day may be. Having to take a bag, sloshing about with this hot liquid out back. But as long as the coffee's fair trade and there's enough room for my milk. And oh, are the scones gluten free? How is this not a crime against humanity? This is the same guy who would never let an eggshell go uncomposted, but he's pouring coffee straight into the garbage. And I do not get anyone who uses headache medicine with any strength other than extra. If you don't need extra strength headache medicine, you don't have enough of a headache to warrant medicine. And finally, 
and this is more positive than some of the complaining I've been doing. I have been making ice for my seltzer. Seltzer, one of the few drinks that literally can't be watered down. I can think of another one. But when you put seltzer ice in your seltzer water, in other words, you get the seltzer, you pour it in the ice tray, and then when you're ready to ice down your seltzer, that's the ice you use. So seltzer ice, it makes the seltzer extra effervescent. Try it. You will see a difference. Even when you look at the cubes, they seem different. They're looser. There's some some air in there or something, some bubbles. It is glorious, glorious, I say. I do not get why people don't see this. Come over here. I will pour you some seltzer ice in your cup, which is not to be spilled in the garbage. Alphonse knows what I'm talking about. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who was the first one who alerted me to the Andrea Bobish news. He was all like, Mike, check it out. Gist producer Mary Wilson got wind that I was doing that pun with Dan Schrader, and she was all like, check, please. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of The Gists. He tried to open a Scientology center in Prague, but it was a financial disaster. It turned out the checks would not clear. The Gist. See, I recommend to the people who elect Andrea Babish that they work together with other international groups, maybe more left-leaning politicians, as a counterweight to his reactionaryism. I find that a system of checks and balancers appeals to my delicate constitution. Others may disagree. Umperu, depru, du peru, and thanks for listening.